Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. This week on Product Love, I talked to Lewis Lin, author of Be the Greatest Product Manager Ever and Decode and Conquer. Lewis is a go-to coach for aspiring product managers, and he's written several books on how to break into product management at companies like Microsoft, Google, and others. So naturally, we talked about how aspiring product managers can pass difficult interviews at companies like Microsoft and Google, and how they can make lasting impressions on the hiring managers. Out of the research and numerous people he's coached, Lewis believes he's identified the one trait that makes people stand out in interviews, and that trait is product leadership. All people interviewing for product management jobs need to have and be able to articulate a moonshot vision. They need to have the courage to suggest something audacious like how the suggestion of a self-driving car would have wowed everyone in 2005. While I think their vision needs to solve an important need in the world, they also need to be able to articulate the technical feasibility of that vision. Product managers have to demonstrate that they can have a grand and marketable solution, but it's just as important that they need to make sure they can influence people into believing this vision. This all got me to thinking about how product managers can stand out more during those interviews. Junior product managers, I think, need to think deeply about a problem they wish to solve and not be afraid to dream big about the solution. So do you remember your first product management interview? What did you say that made you stand out? What would you suggest to others? Let me know at ebodic at pendo.io or ebodic on Twitter. Well, welcome, lovers of products. Today, I'm here with Lewis Lin a past product manager at some great places you might have heard of, like Microsoft and Google, and a current author. So with that, Lewis, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Eric, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I'd be happy to tell you a little bit more about myself. I'll just start off with my educational background. I got my bachelor's degree in computer science from Stanford. I got my MBA from Kellogg. And then from there, I spent about 10, 15 years in corporate America great places like Google and Microsoft, both in product management and product marketing roles. Most of my time at those two companies was spent on their online advertising platform. So Google ads, and I believe they're calling out Microsoft advertising these days. Those are the platforms that I know best. And for the last 10 years, I left corporate and I decided to pursue my entrepreneurial dreams. And just like other entrepreneurs out there, I have no shortage of projects that I've gotten myself involved in. But by far and away, my biggest emphasis over the last 10 years as an entrepreneur is to uh, be an executive coach, primarily for product managers, focusing on their careers, as well as helping them get ready for interviews. 
So talk to me a little bit about that transition. I mean, moving from, you know, relatively big companies, I mean, well, definitely big companies, at least now with Google and definitely even, you know, 15 years ago at Microsoft. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that first step that, you know, jumping out and, and doing your own thing. Yeah, that first step was actually quite a bit of trepidation. And the reason I say that is it's hard to leave the corporate cocoon. First of all, we're talking about the paycheck. I mean, that is beautiful. And then, of course, benefits. I'm definitely getting to an age where healthcare is important. And then just all the perks of you know being at a corporation, whether it's the free food at Google or the leverage that you get, being able to work at a company like a Google or a Microsoft where you have the benefits of a brand, marketing teams to launch products, engineers who can help you build those products, just all those economies of scale, you don't have that at a startup. And so leaving that cocoon, leaving that safety net, it was not something that I could take lightly. And uh, I imagine it must be a very, very tough decision for everyone else as well. But moving forward from that, uh, initial first step. I would say, you know, some of the biggest differences when it comes to starting your own company versus being in a large corporation, the biggest difference is the fact that a lot of these established companies like Google and Microsoft, you're in an existing business where you have a customer and you have a product and you're really optimizing that product for that customer base. And so there's a lot of operational efficiency going on Whereas in a startup, you might not have that customer base. You might not have that product. And so starting from scratch without customers, without products, you've heard of that term. Startup is really about in search of a business model. It's something that a lot of folks in corporate America don't have a lot of experience doing. And so long story short, when I took that plunge into the startup world, it was like as if I was starting kindergarten all over again. That's an an interesting analogy, starting kindergarten all over again. (laughs) And not only did you take the plunge to leave, right, but you started writing a lot. And talk to me about what compelled you to start writing about product management and product management interviews. Yeah. So I would say, just like any good product manager, the reason I decided to write these books is basically through customer feedback. I had been doing coaching for many, many years. And a few years in, my client said, Lewis, you should write a book. You should write a book about product management, product management interviews. And I never fancied myself as a writer. Just to remind the uh, folks in the audience, I've got a computer science degree and not an English degree. So sitting down, writing, coming from corporate where the most common prose that I use was the form of bullet points in a PowerPoint presentation. Sitting down writing a book was the furthest thing from my mind. But eventually I decided to just take that plunge and give it a go. And you know, I've been really fortunate that after I took that plunge, clearly I'm having a good time and it's been fairly profitable. So at this point, I think I'm up to uh, book number seven or eight at this point. So talk to me about your first book. I believe that was Decode and Conquer, right? Yes. It's been, I've heard it's named one of the best resources for PM candidates, tons of great uh-huh. testimonials. So talk to me about the research process behind that. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to imagine now in 2019, but that book was actually released in 2013. And in the year, year and a half, two years leading up to that book, it was hard because there really wasn't a methodology for especially the most common PM case interview question type, which is a product design question. And so 
a typical product design question would be, how would you redesign Facebook? Or how would you design the next version of the iPhone? And so these questions were fairly commonplace, but there wasn't a, a standardized, repeatable process for building out brand new products. And I know it's hard to imagine today in 2019 where you've got great organizations like the Stanford D School, and they've got their design thinking process that's fairly codified and popularized around the world. And you've got other great authors like Jake Knapp, who wrote the book Sprint, about how to take that design thinking approach to other companies and startups like the companies in the Google portfolio. But back in 2013, there wasn't any of that information. And so my research process was to really think about you know, what were some of the core building blocks when it came to developing and designing brand new products? And eventually, I hit upon a seven-step process. And the marketer in me, I had to wrap that seven-step process into a catchy and memorable acronym. And I came up with circles. And I often tell my clients and workshop attendees that one easy way to remember the circles framework is that designers love circles. And hence, the circles framework is perfect for product design questions. But at the end of the day, the key components of the circles framework, and you could follow the seven steps, or you can use a condensed version of it or call it something completely different, really revolves around the fundamentals of good product design and product management, which is step number one, make sure you understand the goals of the product design. Step number two, what are some of the constraints? Step number three, you know, what are some of the needs that the customers want vis-a-vis some of the current ways that they're trying to solve some of those needs today, whether it's through competitive products or perhaps some makeshift hacked up spreadsheet that they're using to solve that problem today. And then finally, the next couple of steps are prioritization. We hear prioritization a lot when it comes to the world of product management, brainstorming solutions, and then coming up with recommendations as to which one of those solutions is the best using a pro and con analysis. And so those are really the basic building blocks of that circles method. Yeah, definitely very interesting. I'm I'm looking at kind of the abbreviation now. We have, you know, comprehend, identify, report, you know, cut through prioritization, right? List, evaluate, and summarize, right? That's circles. Yes, yes. So uh, talk to me about... And in a little bit more detail, you know, where did people, you know, when you're teaching this and coming up with this framework, where do you see people often struggle? With the circles framework specifically, there's, I mentioned there are seven steps and there are two steps in particular that I've seen a lot of candidates struggle with the most. Number one, articulating the customer need and number two, brainstorming. And I'll go into a little bit more detail if that's okay with you. So first of all, with the customer needs, I'll just do a little bit of role-playing for you. Let's say I were to ask a candidate, how do you improve Facebook? Most candidates, 99% of them, they would follow the circles framework and they would get to the step where they need to talk about the need of a Facebook customer or user. And they would say, hmm, when I think about a Facebook user, they need to be able to take photos. They need to be able to have their friends react to those photos with a like or a heart or some other emotion, and they need to be able to comment on those photos. And so from that articulation of needs, the solutions for those needs become pretty straightforward, which is we need a brand new feature to take photos. We need a feature to 
record comments and we need a way to record their likes and their other reactions. The problem with all that, as you can imagine, just listening to all of that, is the fact that it's so generic, it's so commonplace, and it seems so me too. Like, wait a second, doesn't Facebook already have those features? Is that the most groundbreaking, most creative, most innovative ideas that you can come up with? And so that's a major, major problem. And so one of my key solutions to overcoming these really genericized needs, these really straightforward, not to creative needs, is to ask candidates to rant when they're coming up with customer needs, to really feel the emotion and just like, what makes me really angry about Facebook? And one of the things that might get you really mad about Facebook is the fact that, that they're spreading a lot of fake news on their newsfeed. And so get into that a little bit more deeper. Like, what about that fake news makes you angry? How does that impact your relationships with others? And then from there, you can come up with some really interesting brainstorming ideas on how to solve that fake news problem. Real quickly on the second problem, the brainstorming, I found that a lot of folks brainstorm like one, two, three ideas. And the problem with brainstorming such a short number of ideas is the fact that the first few ideas that you come up with, they're usually the things that are on the tip of our tongue. It's like, huh, if we are going to counteract the fake news problem, we should hire people to do some fact-checking, or we should probably only authorize the sharing of news from reputable outlets like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And they sound okay, and they can probably solve the problem, but they don't seem very creative or groundbreaking. And so what I found is that you really need to push yourself in these interviews to come up with like the seventh idea, the 10th idea, the 12th idea. And it's right around that 10 idea range that you start to come up with some really interesting, groundbreaking, innovative ideas. And at the end of the day, I know a lot of people say, hey, when it comes to the product management interview, the quality of your ideas doesn't really matter. It's really about your thought process. I actually disagree with that. If you come up with ideas that are not so interesting, that seem a little too me too, you're going to have a hard time differentiate yourself from other candidates, number one. And then number two, I do want the candidates who are very, very talented at coming up with really creative and innovative solutions. And number three, the interviewer is human at the end of the day. They want to hear something that's entertaining. And another Me Too response is not entertaining. You really need to impress them. You really need to entertain them with something that they haven't heard before. It's interesting you mentioned entertaining, right? I think of the product manager as the storyteller. And I never really mm-hmm. thought about that for the interview process, but I could see it there too. Like being able to tell a story of why this feature or issue Facebook has in the case of fake news, you know, causes you pain, right? And tell a story mm-hmm. around that. I, I imagine that would work really well. Yeah, just to build on that, if it's okay. I tell my yeah, clients absolutely. that- Yeah, You don't have to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it, Eric. I tell my clients, you know, when I think about the interview, and I, I know there's all these frameworks and some of those frameworks are my own, but when I think about the success formula for getting that job offer, it really just comes down to two things. It comes down to likability and credibility. The credibility piece, I think the, the folks in the audience, they get it. And it's all about your competence. Like, can you do the job of a product manager? Can you prioritize and build out a product roadmap? Can you talk to engineers? Can you influence executives to build a particular feature or product? And so that first part, credibility, competence, can you do the job? But that second point 
Likeability is also important as well. And this is where you share the usual interview advice of, hey, try to connect with the interviewer and see perhaps he or she went to the same alma mater or perhaps he or she has the same set of hobbies. That's where all that interview advice is coming from is because you're trying to build chemistry and rapport with the interviewer. And going back to our previous note, you have a harder time building chemistry and rapport if your ideas are generic and boring and ordinary. And that's why it's so important to come up with entertaining ideas so that you can enhance that likability and ultimately get that job offer. I like that. I, th- I think that's something that people need to think about. I mean, it, it is important that, especially as a product manager, that you're able to influence and part of influencing properly, you know, to some extent is the way you interact with people. Mm-hmm. You bet. So you, you help product managers ace these interviews, right? And mm-hmm. you focus on big companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, along with others. What's one of the things that all these companies are looking for? Yeah. You know, I, I was just reading a blog post the other day. A gentleman, his name is Hitton Shaw. He went through and looked at like 51 product manager job descriptions, and he was able to tease out some of the more common skills and responsibilities that all of these big companies like the Microsoft, Amazon, and Google are looking for. And he came up with things like, and they're not surprising, but like, is the product manager able to prioritize a backlog of features? Or is the product manager able to work well with engineers? Are they uh, data-driven? Are they able to make like an executive decision, if you will, in the sea of gray. And so they're all really great things, something that you see quite often on the job description. But if I were to just tease out maybe like one single item that all of the hiring managers are really looking for, like this magical holy grail of a characteristic that they're looking for in a PM candidate, I would say product leadership. And when I say product leadership, some of the names that I'll mention that exhibit that product leadership would be the usual, right? Starting off with Steve Jobs, somebody who's so visionary, such a strong product leader that he invented and transformed the smartphone industry with the iPhone or the tablet industry with the iPad or the music industry with the combination of the iPod and iTunes. And then, of course, the PC industry with the Mac. But you can think of other people these days, other living legends like an Elon Musk who transformed space rockets and cars or a Jeff Bezos who transformed e-commerce and two-day shipping with Prime. And so when it comes to this product leadership, uh, just to push it one step further, they're really looking for folks who exhibit, to use a Google term, moonshot vision. And there are really three components to a moonshot vision. Uh, Number one, you have to have a candidate to have the courage to suggest something audacious like, let's say, self-driving cars back in 2005 when that was the first time I saw a DARPA video of self-driving cars trying to navigate at, oh gosh, like seven miles per hour in an uninhabited desert or to have the audacity to suggest building a Wi-Fi mesh network on top of hot air balloons like they have at Google uh, with Project Loon or a contact lens that detects glucose readings, which is another thing that uh, Google's life sciences division is doing. And so 
That's step number one, is to you know, have that really audacious vision. Step number two, it's really important that Moonshot Vision actually solves a big and important need. It's not enough for me to suggest something audacious like, let's say, turn the sky purple just because we can. <laughs> What's the purpose of that? And so clarifying the need, the value proposition is absolutely important. And the third part, I think, is one that you know, often gets forgotten because most product managers say, hey, you know, that's not my job. It's the engineering team's job. But also for that moonshot vision to be able to articulate the technical feasibility of this big audacious vision. And you see that across the board with the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all three of them are very, very willing to jump into the technical details so that they can explain to their teams and you would think that they wouldn't have to because their teams are filled with PhDs from MIT and Caltech. But we found that even these top leaders do get into those technical details because that's part of the influence process is to convince others that it is doable. Now, I'm curious, right? ProductCraft did a study where they looked at, mm-hmm. you know, execution versus strategy and slash vision. And you know, the, the results were interesting in that mm-hmm. companies, they felt that the companies in general valued them much more highly for execution-oriented tasks than strategic mm-hmm. tasks. So do you think this is a case where we're often hiring for product leadership and product vision, but at the same time, when you get there, it's about, you know, shipping, shipping, shipping? Yeah, that's a tough <laughs> that's a tough question. So I, you're right. On the one hand, we look upon our role models like the Steve Jobs in the world and we just like we want to be like Steve and we want to hire other Steves and or the up and coming Steves of the world. And then when we think about the reality of what needs to get done, you know, so much of it is just about like are we making sure, you know, the trains are running on time, are we shipping, you know, are we prioritizing correctly? You know, are the engineers on our team, you know, are they effective? Are we unblocking them? And it's, it's a tough call because I think you can argue and say, hey, Lewis, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. or I don't know what the hiring managers or recruiters look, are looking for. Like, while it'd be nice to just stockpile product visionaries, we really just need to have one product visionary. And that's usually just the CEO of the company and everyone else they can just kind of fall in line with that product vision and just execute, execute, execute. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if I were to say, you know, does, it, does all this make sense? I would say so because good product visionaries, they don't grow on trees. Like I'd have to push a little bit harder, but I can all, really can only think of three legendary product visionaries right now at the tip of my tongue. You know, if somebody can find that fourth one or that fifth one or that sixth one, yeah. I'd hire them in a heartbeat and just hold on tight. So let's go back to that candidate. What makes that amazing product manager candidate? And how did you decide on those qualities? Specifically about product leadership or, or did you, were you talking more broadly? I think more, more broadly. I mean, we definitely got the product mm-hmm. leadership one as, as kind of a primary thing that companies mm-hmm. are looking for. Now, thinking about it from a product manager candidate, like what attributes are most important there? And how did you figure out what those should be? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I might be skipping ahead because this kind of dovetails a little bit with my newest book. And that new book is called Be the Greatest Product Manager Ever. And so unlike my other books, it's not about interview preparation. 
what it's really about is how do you move up in the PM career ladder, starting from maybe like an entry-level product manager up to group product manager, to director, to VP of product management, and you know, buying into that uh, off-repeated word. Sometimes product managers are considered the CEOs of a feature or product. You know, so we'll we'll go a full blast ahead and say possibly even CEO. And so in this book, as I was analyzing the progression in each one of those career levels as a product manager, I came up with yet another acronym for six key steps for what makes an ideal product manager candidate. And it goes by the acronym ESTEEM. So to flesh out the acronym, the very first step in line with what your survey identified is execution. Okay. And so what we found is, especially at the individual contributor area, it is so, so important to just get things done. That's what people are really looking to uh, product managers to do. The next level after execution is superior communication skills. And you normally find that usually starting in that group product manager level where you see these group product managers, they're just able to influence effectively and they can tell the story, they can present in in an incredible way. And so that's really that second step. The third step is tactical awareness. And this is a term that I borrow from the sport of soccer. And it's hard to describe, but it's usually that you know, magic that you see usually at the director level where you think to yourself, like, gosh, that director is just so efficient, so effective at what they do. Like for some reason, everyone else's meetings last like an hour. They can get things done in about five to 10 minutes. Somebody else would spend three months trying to uh, influence an executive. This particular director, they can influence somebody in no more than 15 minutes. And so what is that special something that they do that nobody else does? And that's what I call tactical awareness is that they know those little tricks and to the trade that other people don't, that makes them super, super effective so that, that they stand out from the rest. The next one after that is extraordinary mental toughness. And that's just about drive. And it's not just about ambition, but these are the folks where to use another popular term, they've just got uncanny grit, where they're not daunted by setbacks, they have incredible resilience, they have a lot of tenacity, and they just won't give up. A great example would be whichever VP at Amazon who was tasked to roll out Amazon Prime when Jeff Bezos first latched onto it. You know, Just imagine the countless number of people who would have said, you know, Jeff, you're crazy, that can never happen, two-day shipping, that's impossible. It's going to be very, very expensive. You know, even if we didn't use FedEx and UPS, we'd have to build our own logistics and shipping infrastructure. And that's going to cost about $20 billion. And we don't have $20 billion. And can you imagine all the naysaying that would have occurred for a normal person? But there was somebody else who just had that mental toughness and say, you know, Jeff, I think we can do it. And I'm going to do it for you. And those are the people that I'm talking about. The next two real quickly. After that is extraordinary team builder. And that's usually at that VP of product management level. And these folks, they're great because they know how to hire and promote and grow people effectively. And then that last point about growing, 
I see a lot of executives take a very hands-off role. So you know what? I'm an executive. I don't need to be in the weeds. I don't need to be teaching my team how to do the basic blocking and tackling of their jobs. Well, I've actually found that the better executives say, you know what? Actually, no, that is my job to improve the efficiency of my team. And they don't mind teaching others. And so we've seen the, the ones that have this capability are the ones who are very, very willing to teach and share knowledge with others. And then the last part, the moonshot vision, I've already talked about, so you don't need me to regurgitate that. But we found, yes, there's plenty of CEOs out there, but the best of the best, like the Elons, the Jeffs, the Steve Jobs of the world, they're the ones who have these extraordinary moonshot visions that make sure that their company is not only optimized for the present, but they have the ability to have an incredible growth path for the next 30 years because they've got this big audacious vision. So I want to dig into all of that a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I'd definitely like to hear a little more. Sure. So when you're hiring, when you're hiring that PM, and in, I think mm-hmm. you can look for some of these things, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. during the interview sure. process, what do you think is the most important attributes to look for that the product manager brings to the team? And what attributes mm-hmm. do you think can be taught from that frame? Yeah. So, and are you looking, are, are we talking about somebody who's more like entry level, individual contributor level, or somebody a little bit more senior? But, I mean, I think let's talk about someone a little bit more senior, right? Because, I mean, an entry level person early in their job, it's going to be hard to have a lot of that, I think. But someone who's a little more senior, you know, what do you think is most important? If, if I'm a CEO hiring a CPO or maybe a, yep. a chief product officer hiring kind of my direct report, you know, what would mm-hmm. you advise them to look for and what do you think they could teach? Yeah. So if it's somebody at the CPO level or the VP of product management level, the, the biggest value add that those individuals can bring is really their extensive networks. And the reason that their extensive networks are so important is the strong expectation for like a VP or CPO level is in many instances to either replenish the product management ranks or to level up the product management ranks. And one of the quickest ways to do that is to tap into the CPO's Rolodex and say, hey, you've got years and years of experience. You know, who can you bring on from your previous stints at Google, at Facebook, at Amazon to fill these key roles within our organization? Um, And so you're looking for somebody who's got a strong Rolodex, who's got good relationships and who, quite frankly, you know, have access to the, the, the top talent in the industry. Aside from that short-term goal, some of the things that I've seen better CPOs do is they, they can't do the day-to-day job of the product manager. It just doesn't make any sense because the organization is so large. But one of the, the better CPOs, what they would do is they would create a culture for, of innovation. Okay. And so, you know, what do I mean by, by culture of innovation? I'll bring in a couple examples. You know, one very obvious example would be, let's say if a CPO goes into a new organization and they don't have a very strong experimental data-driven type approach, he or she could create this culture where, hey, we've got to adopt more A-B testing, more experimentation, let the data tell us what should work or should not work. Let's not utilize gut intuition and endless debates to do so. 
So that's one example. And then the last thing that I would mention for the CPO is to help the organization increase their skills. And, you know, it really depends on organizational organization. You know, some organizations maybe could really benefit from being more agile. And so if they could teach agile principles, fantastic. If they can bring a consultant in, fantastic as well. Maybe the organization is lacking a metrics-oriented approach. Same thing, to kind of build that company IQ to build up some of those new processes so that the company can be more A-B test-oriented. Cool. Now, I was thinking about this, right? So with this team, mm-hmm. you, have, you have execution, you have superior communication skills, tactical uh-huh. awareness, extraordinary mental toughness, exceptional team builder, and, and kind of that moonshot vision, right? Those are kind of the, the, how do you become the greatest product manager ever? Uh, So what of those six, what do you, what attributes or or what categories do you think are most rare? Is Um, it that moonshot vision like you were talking about earlier? That moonshot vision. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and uh, you know, God bless Tim Cook. He seems like a wonderful gentleman, but we, we see that, you know, it's pretty hard to follow in the footsteps of these jobs. And, I think even Tim's struggling right now to figure out like what is his moonshot, you know. And I've I've lost track how many years since Steve passed, but you know Tim's had some time to put his imprint to usher in the latest and greatest next Apple product, and we just haven't seen it yet. And gosh, Steve just had his magic. It seemed like he had something new for us, some new category that he was going to unveil and change, like almost. It felt like every three months, but quite frankly, it's probably once every year. And he's just not really doing that. And, and these days, it really feels like it's just Jeff, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk who are the ones who are constantly shaking up industries, innovating in ways that we just really haven't dreamed of. So what about number two? Let's see, number one. What, what are the other rare components or more rare components? Yeah, um, I would say... The second one after that is, would be that mental toughness, you know, to have the ability to be so tenacious towards a goal and to just optimistically say, you know what, it sounds crazy, Jeff, but we're going to do it is amazing. And just to kind of contrast why that's so incredible is because, you know, that kind of tenacity, that sort of long-term thinking to just kind of stick through things through thick and thin, it actually kind of runs counter to one of the more recent trends in technology, which is this whole idea of lean product development and minimum viable products, which almost kind of breeds the opposite behavior of mental toughness, which is saying, hey, build something quick, build something fast, get some feedback, and then if it's not quite it, you know, move on to the next thing. And so I feel like we are in a culture where a lot of folks are being taught and said, hey, you know, we should iterate quickly. And then if it fails, then let's just give up on it. And we've seen the better folks, they would say, no, it failed because X, Y, Z reasons. Let's not ignore that feedback, but there's a better way to build this mousetrap. Let's do the Thomas Edison thing of inventing the light bulb and not give up on iteration number 1900 or 1901, or 1902. Let's keep going and invent the darn light bulb until we get it right. And that, to me, seems pretty darn there. Interesting. So 
you know, with the esteem method, it's all about helping mm-hmm. product managers succeed and climb up the corporate ladder, so to speak, right? Yeah. So is it different from industry to industry or would it be different from B2B to B2C? Great question. I haven't thought hard enough about whether or not it differs from industry to industry, whether it would differ for B2C versus B2B. But one of the caveats I do include in, in the book and in the introduction section is that a big part of my recommendations are more appropriate for product managers in fairly large companies. So absolutely, you know, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazons, and probably even a medium-sized company where you've got hundreds of people, if you will. The reason that it might not apply to companies that are super small startups, let's say like a handful of people, is because, you know, a big part of succeeding um, as a product manager is to be able to work with large organizations, you hear so much that term being able to influence without authority. And a big part of influencing others is to use things like politics. And that's one of my chapters in the book is like, how do you play politics or do you choose not to play politics, at least understand how to survive politics. And my guess is that when your company is super, super small, hopefully there's very little politics that you need to play. Or when your company is super, super small, there might be less emphasis to have superior communication skills because you don't need to truly influence with as many organizations or divisions or, or executives as you would in a Fortune 500 company as you would in a small startup, let's say a team of three. So let's talk about product managers and evangelizing their importance. So how, mm-hmm. how can product managers do a better job kind of raising their visibility in their own company? Yeah. When I think about this question, the first thing that comes to mind is an old chestnut that I tell my clients, which is uh, rather than my personal preference is rather than tell people about your value that you bring as a product manager in your organization, the better thing to do is just to show your value and and, truly demonstrate it. And when it comes to, to showing your value, you know, there's no one way to do it. I think about some of the most off-mentioned skill sets uh, product managers are, are asked to adopt and say, hey, you know, product managers, they should learn how to code so that they could show their value in terms of their technical expertise. And maybe if the company's sufficiently small, they can pitch in and help with code. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That'd be great and beautiful but that's one of the you know, super common ones that I hear. Like, you need to be technical or you need to be really good at design so that you go into the company with Photoshop skills and to serve as the, like the second designer or third designer who can help out in a pinch or should be really good at writing SQL queries and be able to, to analyze data so that you don't have to rely on the data science team or the, the finance team. And those are all ways that you can indicate your value. But you know, if you don't like those ways to indicate your value, you can choose things that are even like off the beat and seemingly not as cool as being technical or not as cool as being able to do database queries. You could do things like being the person who always writes meeting notes, for example, or one person that was featured in my book, this product manager, her superpower was that 
she would religiously read every single email that ever came by her inbox. And to me, to other people, reading emails, not only does it not sound like the most fun thing in the world, but how useful could that be? Like, how could that be demonstrable value to the rest of the organization? But this particular individual found out how to make that a superpower because she read every single email. She had this amazing photographic memory. Every time she was part of a meeting, people would have a question like, you know, we should run an A-B test on XYZ. And she would chime in and she would say, you know what? We actually did an A-B test on that nine months ago. Give me one second. She'd go into her email inbox and you're like, oh, I just found the results and I forwarded it to the team. Can you imagine how much time she saved the meeting participants, the organization, about the endless debates about whether or not this A-B test should be run because she simply was a Google. She had indexed in her brain the entire organization. <laughs> she was a Google. Emails that everyone loved her because they wanted her in their, in their meetings because she would save them so much time and she would surface up all this organizational knowledge. And that special superpower, you know, which wasn't coding, which wasn't design, which wasn't data science. And just on a happy note, you know, this individual is a vice president of product management of a Fortune 500 company right now. Awesome. That's great to hear. So talk to me about the future. How do you see the role of product management evolving? And how will this affect being, you know, or I should say, how will this affect how they're being hired and promoted through an enterprise? Oh, gosh, that is a great question. I almost want to say something really trendy and and say, well, the product manager's role is evolving to be a little bit more data oriented because of this whole data science phenomenon slash fab. Or I might be tempted to say, oh, well, the product management role is going to evolve to be more customer acquisition driven because of the whole growth marketing role. And we've heard of all the amazing growth hacks that Facebook did and Airbnb did and further back Hotmail and LinkedIn did to really drive customer acquisition. But I'll, I'll try to steer clear of, of trends and hopefully some, offer something that's a little bit more timeless, which is, without a doubt, the pace of technology is amazing, amazingly fast, possibly frightening. And especially in the last 15, 20 years, it's just been so, so quick. Like It feels like you know somebody who is if Snapchat today is no longer relevant six months from now or a year from now. And so, you know, given the pace of change, not only in terms of products and, you know, categories, but really skills is the one that I'm focused on, which is, you know, you might learn something back in school that's just no longer relevant today. And there's a new set of skills that you need to be able to adopt, whether it's, uh, hardware skills or AI, machine learning, computer vision, et cetera. And so when you say, hey, you know, what's the most important thing that you need to kind of keep in mind as, as the product management role evolves and, and grows, I would say your ability to learn fast because we can't really anticipate what skills you'll need as a product manager six months from now, 12 months from now, 18 months from now. I mean, they, the big general ones, like the ones in the esteem method, like execution and communication skills and, and vision, I think those will be timeless. But you know, whether or not I need to be an expert in self-driving car technology, I don't know. But if that is important as a product manager, 
I hope everyone has the competency to be able to learn quickly, to be able to either spend a weekend, a week, two weeks, and learn what they need to be effective as a PM rather than say, hey, huh, it's time for me to go back to school and get trained on, get my master's on self-driving cars because if that's the case, boy, we're going to need master's degrees like every single year and there's just not enough time or not enough money to do so. So let's finish up this interview by talking a little bit about Lewis. Tell me, what's, what's sure. your favorite product? That is a good question. You know, my my wife is a big fan of food and so I'll, I'll just share one that's related to food and I'll say one of my favorite products is the Instapot. And I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Instapot and boy, is that revolutionary or what? I mean, you literally you don't have to quote unquote cook anymore in the sense that you're cooking and you know putting something on a on a stove and pushing things around in a pot. The Instapot's revolutionized it so that instead of cooking, all you have to do is you just prepare the food, and it usually involves like washing and cutting whatever the ingredients are. You throw them in, you push some buttons, and then you have a meal. And so that is my favorite product. Awesome. I have heard that one before, too. It's funny. There's like cars, phones, food. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarities, I think, in in people's favorite products. So final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Yeah, this one I got a little bit of heads up. So I appreciate that. And so I I did what every good product manager does is I I went in and and talked to the the users. And so I, I pulled my team and I had each one of my team members volunteer one item. And so this is what they said. I'm persistent. I'm ambitious and I'm visionary. Hmm. I think those are a great three. Now, do you agree <laughs> with you. them? You know, I, coming back to, you know, good old PM skills 101, I'm actually, I'm kind of glad that I, I talked to them about it because those were not the three that I would have said. So I learned something a little bit about myself today. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you did. Well, thank you, Lewis. This has been great. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.